0: I want to talk tonight about the five very common classical hindrances that arise in meditation practice, which will be a review for some of you, and uh, newish information for some of you. When we talk about these particular qualities, sometimes they're known as hindrances or defilements of mind. And the word defilement is a fairly unfortunate translation of a Pali word. The word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, is klesa. And more literally what it means is torment of the mind. That is a concept that most of us can get behind from our own experience. The word defilement has a somewhat mid-Victorian air (laughs) of uh, judgment and condemnation. But torment of the mind we tend to understand from our own experience. There are some qualities that when we are lost in them, when we're driven by them, when we are overcome by them, they are tormenting to us. These are the kalesa or the defilements And what's crucial is a relationship to these qualities of mind that is reflective of our deepest wisdom and compassion. They're taught over and over again because they are such common experiences. They're things that simply happen in the course of going deeper, looking within, looking more clearly. And it's essential that we be able to use their occurrence as a time of expressing our wisdom and compassion and deepening those forces. Wisdom and compassion both are questions of vision, of how we view things. In that sense, you don't even have to consider compassion a feeling, like a a sentiment or an emotion, but it's a quality of vision, of understanding, of holding things in a certain light. I often think of a very uh, famous quotation of the Buddhas when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. This very commonly quoted statement is one of the reasons, I imagine, that Buddhism can have a reputation as being very pessimistic and depressing. But really, it's quite uplifting. It means several different things. Sometimes the statement is used to point to the need we have to acknowledge the very real suffering and torment that there is the open acknowledgement of it being the beginning of coming to the end of suffering. And it's also used as a way of viewing ourselves, a way of viewing life. Rather than regarding the forces, the habits that arise in our minds, rather than viewing the actions of others in the light of good and evil, or good and bad, or right and wrong. We can hold the vision of various things that arise in our minds leading towards suffering and other aspects, other mind states, leading toward the end of suffering. And feel the difference within your own mind if you begin to view yourself in this light You see things like torments of the mind, jealousy and greed and anger, fear. And rather than feeling contemptuous of yourself or rejecting of yourself or angry with yourself for the arising of these qualities, there is a very natural compassion. When you see that they are qualities of suffering rather than bad, miserable, wrong, awful, terrible, disgusting, qualities that you have. (laughs) And similarly, when you see all those forces of generosity and care and kindness, all those things that lead to the end of suffering, there's a very natural rejoicing. There's an ability to actually take delight in that. So when we are holding this vision... Which is the vision of compassion, whether we're regarding ourselves or we're regarding others, it's the uprooting of the quality of shame and guilt and fear and separation. What we feel in response to seeing ourselves or someone else moving towards suffering is compassion, and that compassion can be a powerful motivation to take action. Thich Nhat Hanh said <clears throat> once that compassion is a verb. And even in the very traditional definition, the translation from the Pali, it's the trembling or the quivering of the heart. It's a movement. It's a verb. We might take very strong action based on this feeling, but it's not a sense of rejection. It's not a sense of distance or alienation. So the examples often used of seeing a child reach their hand out toward a flame or a fire. You might take very strong action to pull that child back or to have them move away because you see that they're moving toward suffering. You don't just sit there. But you also don't take that strong action on the basis of rejecting the child, of feeling contempt for them. In some ways, it's like a recognition of our oneness. We know what it feels like to suffer. And so we can move to effect change as much as possible for the sake of our own liberation from suffering for the sake of others. So that's the the basic vision that gives rise to compassion. It's a whole reorientation of our minds away from seeing things as good and bad, to seeing ourselves and others in the light of suffering and the end of suffering. And so when we work with forces such as the hindrances, both in terms of wisdom and compassion, the primary element is a sense of inclusion. We include this aspect of our minds, whatever it might be, in this field of awareness, which is wisdom. And we include whatever hindrance, whatever force might have arisen in the mind in this field of non-judgmental, loving-kindness, that tenderness or movement of the heart that wishes release from suffering and isn't angry or afraid about what's arising. That's compassion. The hindrances arise very, very, very often. And going back to the sacred mantra of this morning, that's okay. What is important always is our relationship to them. Perhaps they're particularly singled out in terms of all of the different lists because they are very seductive. The quality of their energy, the nature of how they arise in the minds, have us easily believe that this is who I really am. 7,000 other things have come and gone in the course of the day, but this is who I really am. And so we get lost, we get beguiled, we get seduced. In some way our awareness, the, the spaciousness of our awareness collapses very readily around these states because all of these states have a very limiting, enclosed nature. And when We are not mindful of them or we don't feel compassion with their arising when we either judge them and get angry about them being there, try to push them away, or we get lost in them and identify with them as being who we really are. In either case, our awareness will collapse and be as limited as the nature of The object, and it doesn't have to be that way. The first of the hindrances is the force of desire or attachment, which is clinging or grasping in the mind. We experience it very often in practice when we have an idea of what good meditation practice looks like, and we want it really very badly. It may be something we have experienced in the past. It may be simply a concept that we hold about what good meditation is. I can remember very early in my practice somehow I got the idea in my mind that all the really good meditators were sitting bathed in a sea of white light that all these people like Carol and Joseph and all the people who were at my first meditation retreat were sitting there in complete bliss with these brilliant visions of white light. And I didn't have any white light. <laughs> I had a lot of knee pain and I had a lot of sleepiness and I didn't have any white light. But because I was so utterly convinced that The vision of white light was the singular experience that defined good meditation. Nothing I experienced was good enough. I felt contemptuous of all of the different things that were happening to me because none of them were white light. It took a very long time for me to understand that it made absolutely no difference. Over and over again, my teachers would say to me something like, And how much equanimity are you bringing to the observation of your knee pain? And I'd say, None, <laughs> because there was none. There was the huge desire for what I didn't have, very little understanding and certainly very little gratitude for what I did have. The basic premise of the practice is that it makes absolutely no difference what is happening to us. The most important thing is the degree of awareness and compassion we are bringing to it. And so your entire day can be a movement from knee pain to sadness, to boredom, to sleepiness, to anger, to doubt. And it could be a wonderful day of meditation. This is one of the hardest things to believe. We want so much for things to be pleasant, to be wonderful, to be open, it's very interesting, you know, how we begin when we talk about being with the breath as being with a primary object, which is basically neutral. And I've often seen in working with Asian teachers that they're astonished that we can take something like the breath and make it an object of self-judgment. <laughs> I'm not breathing deeply enough. I'm all constricted. I'm, you know, it's not good enough. I want a beautiful breath, just free, moving through my body, nothing held back. They're amazed. It is amazing, actually. <laughs> it's not that desire is bad or wrong, or that we need to feel contempt for ourselves for its arising, but understand what it does. Our, our vision of happiness gets very limited our idea of good meditation, our idea of happiness, our idea of attainment, our idea of of joy, whatever it is, becomes contained in this object which we either have or we don't have. If we don't have it, nothing else is good enough. If we do have it, we're immediately afraid it's going to change. It's going to go away. It's going to pass. Once there's an object that we are attached to, by definition there's separation. There's me and that object, and there's fear of loss, there's fear of change. Attachment or desire is, is the mental equivalent of our bodies leaning forward trying to have, trying to hold on to something, trying to keep something from changing. And as you might imagine or perhaps experience in your own body, the kind of hurting or aching that would happen if we were leaning forward all the time. It's just that same quality of unease, of hurting, of aching that happens in the mind from leaning forward all the time. That's why the the movement in meditation is one of leaning back. It's coming back to center. It's coming back to peace, coming back to balance. Because the quality of desire in and of itself is somewhat painful. When we're lost in desire or attachment, in our lives, it's very rare to actually pay attention to what it feels like. Almost by definition we get lost in the object. It's contemplation of the object or intoxication with the object that we don't have or that we have and feel we need to keep in order to be complete. We get so fixated on the object that it is quite rare to take a look at the actual feeling of desire or wanting. And that is part of our exploration. It's like, what is this quality that can run our lives? And so with the arising of a state of desire or attachment, we start to pay attention to it. We feel its suffering nature, we feel its limitation, or we feel how it brings us out of balance. And out of the greatest compassion for ourselves, we learn how to let go and come back to peace. The second of the hindrances is, in some ways, the energetic opposite, and that's the state of anger. Once again, this is not to say that anger is bad or wrong, but being lost in anger Being driven by anger is a state of torment, and this is something that we can experience very clearly. There's something about being lost in anger that is incredibly diluted, where our world gets very, very small. Our idea of who we are gets very, very small. We lose a sense of perspective, we lose a sense of possibility we lose a sense of options. And as everything contracts, we can often get very afraid. And because of that fear or panic, we get even angrier. One day, not too long ago, somebody sent me some email, and they were asking me a question about anger. (laughs) So I said in response... Well, one of the very painful things about anger is the tendency we have, when lost in anger, to just put people into a box. You know, it's the mind that says, you are that and you always will be. Or I am that and I always will be. So I sent off that reply via email. And just after that happened... Something went terribly wrong in the relationship between my computer and my printer. And I got really frustrated, and I got down on my hands and knees, and I started pulling out plugs and putting in other plugs and trying to fix the problem. The person who normally helps me with uh, the whole computer world was on vacation, and I found myself feeling very angry at him. And my mind was just filled with thoughts like, why isn't he here when I need him? But in doing that, I completely overlooked the fact that I had actually strongly urged him to go on vacation. (laughs) And then I was very angry at myself. I kept thinking, why can't you be the kind of person who can fix these things? In the meantime, of course, I fixed it. But I saw this incredible collapse of my identity, my feeling about the other person, the tremendous delusion, how much I overlooked in being lost in that state of anger. So then I got back up on my chair, I got back online, and there was my correspondent again, the person who had asked me the question about anger. And what he was saying this time was, I don't really understand what you mean about how when we're lost in anger it leads to our putting people in boxes. So I just typed out to him exactly what had just happened. I said, okay, here it was. I put him in a box. I put myself in a box. And this is what we do very often. One of the definitions of anger in Buddhist psychology is a state of persecution. It's this unrelenting quality of injury. It's the narrowness, the isolation of mind that is so painful in the state of anger. We isolate out, we fixate on something. We can't see the big picture very easily. Of course, there's a tremendous amount of energy in anger which can be very positive. It can cut through passivity, and it can cut through apathy. But it is so painful. It's likened in the Buddhist psychology to being a forest fire, like a forest fire, which burns out of control and is devastating. Those of you who've ever witnessed the results of a forest fire know that. It can rage just wild leave us devastated, leave us perhaps in a place very far from where we wanted to be. Anger is the mind state that dislikes what's happening and it strikes out against it. It says, I cannot bear for this to be the way that things are. And again, it's not bad or wrong. It's something that arises in response to circumstances or conditions. The question is, again, how do we relate to it? How much awareness, how much wisdom, how much compassion do we bring forth in that moment when we see it arise? When it's a strong factor of mind, then very often we get into the habit of projecting outward any inner dissatisfaction we might be feeling So everywhere we look, we see what's wrong. We walk into this room, and we notice what we don't like about people, about the place, about the situation. What's very important is simply to understand, to create enough inclusion in the mind So that we understand that this too is a conditioned thing. It's insubstantial. It arises due to conditions. And it is not who I really am. It's a tremendous force, it's a tremendous energy. And very painful when we're lost in it. It's the other side of desire what happens when you sit long enough and you never see white light and you think you really should? You think you should have long ago, perhaps. The question is, in these situations, always, what is the consequence of the anger? Does it actually lead to some control over a situation? Does it hasten the arrival of white light? Probably not. We look at what we like, we look at what we don't like, and we understand that we can't control that flow of pleasure and pain. But that the quality of mindfulness can go anywhere we take refuge in effect in our ability to be aware many of you have heard me say that when i was first sitting with upandita i would go in to see him many many times with some glorious experience i had in my meditation that i liked very much and i would go in and describe it to him. And he would look at me and say, well, did you note it? And I would sit there and think, what do you mean, did I note it? It was wonderful. (laughs) You know, can't you tell how extraordinary it was? And I would go in to see him many more times with a difficult, conflicted, unpleasant, unhappy experience. And he would look at me and he would say, well, did you note it? And I would think, what do you mean did I noted it? It was horrible. How could I have noted it? But of course he was right. And it was tremendously liberating to begin to appreciate both the austerity and the completeness of his approach. Because he really was not all that concerned with what was happening to me what he was concerned about was whether I was aware of it or not. And it really became a question of faith for me to see that with faith or confidence I began to recognize, oh, I can note this too. I can include this unpleasant experience. I can include this unwelcome, undesired experience. In my field of meditation, also. Mindfulness can go here too. Or I can be compassionate about this as well. It's not to say we like everything, but there's a certain relationship of inclusion, of welcoming. I think about a friend of mine who was a therapist, and I think she was a really fantastic therapist. She talked to me once about somebody coming to see her as a client who she really didn't like. Somebody came to see her who she just didn't approve of, she didn't like, she didn't like his political views, she didn't like his attitude toward women. There were many things she just did not like about him. And she actually tried to persuade him to see somebody else for therapy. But for some reason he really wanted to see her. And so she took him on as a client. She said it was amazing to see over time the transformation that happened in her own mind because suddenly she wasn't looking at his actions and his views and and his opinions with contempt or repugnance. She was really committed to helping him be free from suffering. And so she was suddenly looking at all of these things that she didn't like with a certain sense of compassion In effect, he'd become hers. And his release from suffering was very important to her. When she told me that story, I began to think of the bodhisattva, or that being who aspires toward enlightenment, as really being an incredible job description. It's like an aspiration to view everyone as ours, that sense of connection and interconnection being so powerful that we realize that we need not feel separate from anybody, even if we don't like them. We don't need to feel separate from any aspect of ourselves. We don't need to feel contempt and anger and pushing away because our motivation, our aspiration, is released from suffering. And so we take it on. It's ours. The whole world is ours. The third of the hindrances which arise so very often is that of sleepiness or sloth, sloth and torpor, when the mind becomes very heavy and dull and unwieldy we feel very bored, or we feel discontented, we feel disconnected, and we finally fall asleep. Sleepiness arises for many different reasons in the course of the practice. Sometimes we're actually getting quite concentrated, but there's not enough juice, there's not enough energy in the system. To balance out the tranquility and the stillness of that concentration. And so we get into a very serene, dreamlike feeling, but without any real spark of awareness. And then slowly that dreamy state sinks and sinks and sinks further until we're fast asleep. Sometimes we get sleepy in practice because our experience is more or less basically neutral. We tend in our lives to be conditioned so that we might only really wake up and feel alive when something is very pleasant or something is very unpleasant and therefore challenging. And all those simple repetitious moments, feeling a breath, hearing a sound, opening a door. They're so boring for us because we're not actually present. We're not actually connected or very alive in that moment. But the consequence of that for us is that we become kind of like experienced junkies because we need higher and higher levels of stimulation all of the time in order to feel awake, in order to connect, in order to feel alive. Whereas really that, that spark of aliveness is in the quality of our attention. It's not in the nature of the object. I think probably one of the sleepiest times in my practice was when I was practicing in Burma where breakfast is served at about 5 or 5.15 in the morning lunch is served at 10 o'clock in the morning and we were all living on very strict interpretations of eight precepts which meant that after noon there was no tea, no food no coffee, nothing and sometimes Upandita, who I was studying with, would leave the monastery to go on a speaking tour. And so there would be no interview and no discourse either. I can remember leaving the dining room at 10.30 in the morning. (laughs) And with each step, I was just getting more and more tired. And really it was because there was nothing distracting to look forward to for the rest of the day. Nothing. But this is how we can be. This this reliance or dependence on distraction, on diversion, in order to feel awake, rather than refining our attention on what is actually happening right now. Sometimes we feel sleepy because there is a painful experience that's coming up and it's very difficult. We either don't have the confidence that we can be aware of it or it feels overwhelming in some way and so we tend to go to sleep. Sometimes this is a good thing. Sometimes It reflects a need for more courageous application. And sometimes it's really like, almost like the wisdom of the body-mind saying, take a break. I think of our teacher Deepama a lot in this regard. Many of you have heard different ones of us talk about her. She was a very special person. She had been as was the Indian custom of that time. She had been put into an arranged marriage when she was 12 years old and went to Burma to live with her husband. After many years, had three children, and then two of her children and her husband died. And she went into a state of tremendous grief. She was bedridden for about a year with her heart just breaking. And then um, her doctor actually said to her, you need to do something to transform your mind. Because here you still have this one daughter and you need to live to take care of her and you won't live unless you do something. And so she got out of bed and she went to learn how to meditate in a temple in Burma. When she actually began practicing meditation, because of the various sorrows and and troubles in her mind, she hadn't been able to sleep for about five years. And then she went into the temple and as soon as she began to meditate, she fell asleep. And she said that all that could happen was that she slept and she was very frustrated, she cried a lot because there she'd been not able to sleep for five years and then she went to meditate and she could only sleep but she just kept persevering. And after some period of time, it just broke open. And then she could be present without falling asleep. So there are many different reasons that that kind of overwhelming feeling of drowsiness comes up. And then the next hindrance is the opposite that's the state of restlessness, where we have a lot of energy. There's very little serenity, very little centeredness or calm. Sometimes it's quite physical. We just have the sense that we're just going to jump out of our skin. I have a friend who was practicing once in Sri Lanka and she said that in the course of one hour sitting, she used to get so incredibly restless that she'd have to stand up, take her zafu, move to the other end of the room, sit down, start again, get restless, stand up, move to the other end of the room so that within the course of a single hour she would move six or seven times. Sometimes restlessness is a state of worry or anxiety about the future. Sometimes it manifests not so much physically but more in the form of obsessive planning. I often experience it as some means of trying to assert control over my future by planning it out, as though if I planned it carefully enough, I could be assured that it would happen exactly as I intended to happen. I can remember when I was living in India in the 70s and practicing I decided that I was going to live in India for the entire rest of my life, which of course I did not. But because I wanted to so much, and I was so anxious, so unsure about it working out, I used to sit in meditation and plan out all the ways that I was going to make sure I lived in India for the entire rest of my life. So that I would sit and I would start thinking, okay, next year when I have to go renew my visa, I'll go over there because I've heard that those visa officials are very sympathetic to meditators and I'm sure they'll give me another year. And the year after that, I'll go to that end of the country because I've heard those visa officials are very corrupt and they'll take bribes and you know, then they'll let me stay in the country. And the year after that, I'll go over there because no Westerners go over there. And so, you know, they'll no doubt be enchanted that somebody wants to stay in their country and they'll give me a visa. And the year after that, I'll go over there. And it would go through this whole routine and then I'd get up and I'd do walking meditation and then I'd sit down and I'd have to start all over again because no amount of planning actually was going to give me that sense of inner certainty or security. Until I finally said something to myself like, you're not even really in India while you're in India. All you're doing is thinking about the future. Why not be in India while you're in India and then just see what happens? Sometimes we get lost in anxiety which leads to restlessness, because we're contemplating things we've done in the past. And guilt is one of the main causes of restlessness. There's an interesting distinction that can be made in the Buddhist psychology between the force of guilt and that of remorse. Remorse being a very skillful recognition And feeling the pain of having caused pain by something we said or something we did or maybe something we didn't do. And we feel the pain of that, but then, in essence, we can forgive ourselves. We can let go and move on. Whereas guilt is a state that is ongoing. We lacerate ourselves with the memory and we get more and more restless. We can't let go. It's a form of anger against ourselves. It's very common in the course of intensive meditation, particularly to get so sensitized and so aware that we really begin to remember unbidden the things that we've done or the things that we've said that have been hurtful in some way. It's almost like we take this moral inventory, whether we want to or not, And a lot of things come up. And this is very natural. The question, again, is how we relate to it. Can we experience it with awareness, with wisdom and compassion? Can we let go and move on? They will certainly come up from time to time. (laughs) Once when I was sitting in Burma, my interviews followed immediately after Joseph's and in Burma where there's very little sense of privacy anyway. The custom was for you to wait in the back of the room for your own interview and so I ended up hearing all of his interviews and someone else ended up hearing all of my interviews. One day I was sitting in the back of the room and Joseph said something to Upandita about a memory he was having about something he had done many years ago that had really hurt somebody. And I could tell from hearing his voice that he felt really badly about it. So naturally my curiosity got quite piqued and I thought, I wonder what he did. (laughs) But I didn't get to ask him for about three months because there we were silently meditating. So then we finished practice, and we left Burma, and we went to Bangkok, and we're having dinner and for the first time in th- three months. <laughs> and I said to him, by the way, <laughs> all those months ago when you were saying to Upandita about that really bad, hurtful thing you had done, what'd you do? <laughs> and it was nothing. It was like, it was a very minor thing. But it had genuinely caused him a great deal of pain in the memory of it because someone had been hurt in the process. And then I was just writing this story. And so I called Joseph and I said to him, how would you feel if I used the story? And he said, well, what point are you trying to make? And I said, well, how we can feel very strong remorse even over something that is not so terrible, you know, it's not so big, because we get so sensitized and because the mind just moves toward purity in that way. So I told him that, and he said, it wasn't just a little thing. (laughs) I really hurt somebody. You know, but it was a little thing. And sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes we really have acted in a way that has caused tremendous pain to ourselves, to somebody else. And this also is something that we have to accept to be able to see clearly in the light of wisdom and compassion, to feel the pain of it, to move on. Then the last of the hindrances is the state of doubt. Doubt is compared to standing at a crossroads and not knowing which way to turn. It's a state of being stuck. There's a very positive aspect to doubt as well. The ability to question and not just to take things as true simply because they're said. Probably the, the most wholesome aspect of it is a kind of insistence on knowing for ourselves, knowing the truth for ourselves, not just taking someone's understanding, which is like borrowed understanding. So that part of it is really very helpful. The difficult part of it is when we so separate from our experience because we're lost in conjecture that we don't allow the truth to unfold, we don't allow the process to unfold, we can't hear the truth, because we're busy thinking and speculating and wondering. We might be sitting filled with doubt about ourselves. Now, am I doing it right? Am I doing it perfectly? Where's the white light? Is it worth doing? What am I doing here? And on and on it goes. The arising of these thoughts, of course, is quite reasonable. But being lost in them endlessly means that we don't come to the present often enough to see the truth unfold. It's very difficult to move forward when we're lost in doubt. Probably the strongest period of doubt I ever had in my practice was quite early on when I was torn between two different approaches to practice My very first teacher was a Burmese teacher, who taught in a style quite similar to this. And then someone showed me a picture of a Tibetan teacher, and I was quite moved by his appearance, and I decided to go meet him, which I did, and I began practicing with him. And then I was stuck, because I didn't know which teacher and which method to follow what I did really was get lost in doubt so that when I would sit to meditate rather than actually doing one method or the other I would just think I'd think, should I do this or should I do that I wonder which is faster, I wonder if this is better maybe this is better, no I bet that one's better You know, on and on would go, so I would never actually practice and what was almost worse was that Every time I was with my Burmese teacher, I would ask him what he thought about Tibetan practice, which he really did not know anything about. And every time I was with my Tibetan teacher, I would ask him what he thought about Burmese practice, which he didn't know anything about. So I wasn't learning anything from my practice, because I wasn't actually practicing, and I wasn't learning anything from my teachers because I was insisting on talking to them about the things they knew least about, as opposed to the things they knew quite a lot about, which was their own tradition. And again, it was a kind of endless process that I had to stop by taking a fresh look at it. I finally said to myself, just do something. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment, Just take six months and do one of them, any one of them, but do something. I had to actually take the risk. I had to come close to my experience for a period of time rather than being separate from it, wondering about it. This is the force of doubt, which can be, especially in our culture, There's something very prideful in being skeptical, cynical, suspicious, doubting. And it takes a lot to be able to take a risk, to say, I do want to know the truth for myself, And being away from some process of discovery, thinking about it, is not going to be the avenue of that discovery. And so we let go of the doubts as best we can, even if just for a short period of time, to be able to move forward, to explore for ourselves. So these are the five hindrances of attachment and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. All of our effort goes toward the clear awareness of these states as well as others. It's including them in our our field of mindfulness. The quality of mindfulness can go anywhere. We say, mindfulness does not take the shape of what it's watching. We can be mindful of a very happy thought in one moment and a very difficult, restless, or angry thought in the next. And the mindfulness itself is not going to be enhanced by the beauty of one thought and ruined by the pain of another. Mindfulness can go anywhere. It won't take the shape of what it's watching. That's why it is the essence of our freedom. When we say, or said, could you note it? That's exactly what he was pointing to. Can you be aware of it? Can you see it clearly? And it's not a cold, indifferent seeing. There is pervading it this sense of compassion, of care, of loving kindness. To see that it's not bad, they're not wrong. It doesn't mean that we're bad meditators or bad people. But to see, in effect, they are painful states. Were we to get lost in them, were we to believe this is who I really am, we would be tormented. But even with their continual and constant arising, it doesn't matter. It's not a reflection of who we are as people. It's not a reflection of the quality of our practice. Because our freedom lies in our relationship to these things not in being able to stop them. We can't stop them. And it's useless to try. The degree of energy that we put out trying to stop the flow of events to keep terrible, nasty thoughts from arising in our minds is useless. We might well harness all of that energy and recognize that we can use it toward a very strong and immediate connection to what's happening, which is mindfulness. Seeing it clearly, seeing it completely, seeing it with compassion. What have we ever been able to control anyway? How much willful determination do you think will allow you to walk into this room and say, okay, I've suffered enough. No more sleepiness. No more restlessness. No more doubt. Maybe a little anger, but... And maybe a morning's worth of desire, but that's it. You know, I've decided. It's not a function of our will. All of these things arise as conditions come together for them to arise. And our work is in stopping the folly of trying to control what we could never control to begin with, and using the capacity of the mind, the incredible capacity of the mind, for awareness, for insight, and for compassion, which actually, with all the very same things happening, can completely transform our experience. So let's sit together for a few minutes.